What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? When you're dealing with a store like this, they're insured up the ass. They're not supposed to give you any resistance whatsoever. If you get a customer or an employee who thinks he's Charles Bronson, take the butt of your gun and smash their nose in. Drops him right to the floor. Everyone jumps. He falls down screaming, blood squirts out of his nose. Freaks everybody out. Nobody says fucking shit after that. You might get some bitch talk shit to you. But give her a look like you're going to smash her in the face next. Watch her shut the fuck up. <laughs> now, if it's a manager, that's a different story. The managers know better than to fuck around. So if you get one that's giving you a static, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy, so you got to break that son of a bitch in two. If you want to know something he won't tell you, cut off one of his fingers, the little one. Then tell him his thumb's next. After that, I'll tell you if he wears ladies' underwear. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. Episode 69 of the Cult of Matt and Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. Uh, I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. Make sure to visit us at our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. So, uh, show news. Just got any show news this week? I don't have any show news. Did we get any email? Uh, no email this week. Did, so uh, I could have sworn we got an a email a few weeks ago that you sent to me. Yeah, I was, look, I was looking through my email and I couldn't find it. I was going to read it. Off to, oh, uh, I'll probably right. just have to go into the actual email account and read it, though that'll probably uh, be more effort. Ooh, than that's calling. painful. Yeah. <laughs> Log into an email account? Good Lord. Oh, then you have to, like, get rid of the cookie of your browser so you can re-log in to a different... Uh, I know, it's just a pain in the ass. Well, if you got to go into something like that, you can just do the... Uh, you can go in incognito mode or privacy mode, whatever browser you're using. Yeah. Oh, oh well. I'll f- if you can't find it, I'll forward it to you, and uh, we can bask in our in our fandom. So, <laughs> any more browser tips? Uh, no, I got nothing this week. Uh, just go to our blog if you're going to browse, unless you just can't stand blogs. I'm starting to backlash against the word blog now. I think every time I refer to a blog, I'm going to say web. Log and Web I'm going log? to say that yeah with a nice pause in between mm. the B and the L just because the blog thing it's a little Orwellian I'm not into it so I'm going to go make sure to visit our weblog at review at dot blogspot oh see I can't get rid of the blogspot I'm stuck with yeah. that so why don't we call it a um, a digital diary. Yeah, uh, let's move on. All right, so <laughs> this week our film is the 1992 classic Reservoir Dogs, uh, directed by uh, none other than Quentin Tarantino, starring a ensemble cast of, uh, I guess, heavies or would-be heavies. There's a lot of folks here that I think made their name in uh, this film, and like Steve Buscemi. I'm pretty sure he was maybe a bit actor prior to Reservoir Dogs. But then after this, he came into his own and started uh, getting a lot more work, I think. And now he's uh, plays uh, Nucky Thompson. That's his name. Mm, that's right. Well, you look at the cast here and you go, how the hell did he get? Did he have some sort of amazing talent agent or casting director? That put this cast together because you're right. I mean, if 
if Tim Roth and uh, Steve Buscemi and maybe Chris Penn uh, or maybe Michael Madsen. I mean, he's got, well, he's got endless great, uh, great talent. What what happened was, I guess, uh, Quentin Tarantino was going to do the film himself with some friends because he was a no name. Uh, you know, I think he had maybe $30,000. Uh, no, I don't even think he had that. And I think Harvey Keitel read it and then offered to co-produce. And oh, that's when they started collecting a lot more talent, I guess, to the film. Uh, you know, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen. Uh, I don't know how much of an actor Chris Penn was prior to this. I know he was in uh, bit parts. He's dead now. He died. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had his recently. famous brother, so I guess he had some... What's that, Michael him. Penn, the musician? Oh, no, I thought kidding. he was... Uh, oh, No, they're all brothers. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Oh, they are? <laughs> the humorless brother, uh, Sean Penn. was. Uh, That's right, yeah. If if Sean Penn has a sense of humor, he does not let it... I want to hope he does. I saw him like in a jackass movie, like just a little bit. So I assume he has a sense of humor, but every time he's interviewed, he's not the most verbally uh talented person he doesn't speak off the cuff very well or uh with a great amount of oratory and so i always kind of, he can always kinds of kinds of kind kind of comes off as a little dull uh, i hope he's smarter uh, he gives a lot to charity and he's that that's like his big thing but uh he's just not very quick with the wit when he's uh, yeah, interviewed I don't, I don't think Humor is really his great tool. And he's a serious man, so he sort of has a... Uh, but I think I've heard that in private, sometimes he can be uh, maybe a little more... A funny guy? Relaxed, yeah. Yeah, let's hope. I think he yeah. maybe he takes his public persona pretty seriously. He can even tell when he was a young man and the whole Madonna punching the uh, cameraman. Oh, business. yeah. I think he's pretty serious about his... I don't know, maybe he's sort of a very private guy and he's very uncomfortable about his public image and ends up taking it very seriously when it I think does he's crop up. just haunted by the ghost of Jeff Spicoli constantly. I think that's his big deal. Really? I, I, I never felt he was typecast from his great role as Spicoli. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure there's a whole, you know, uh, podcast on Sean Penn we can get into, but that's not what we're doing this week. We're going to talk about Reservoir Dogs. So we had some homework uh, prior to this podcast, and the, the the homework was to come up with our own reasoning for why Quentin Tarantino named this film Reservoir Dogs, and then actually figure out the actual reason uh, afterward and see if we were any cl- we're close to right. So, well, you know, I, I after watching the movie critically and thinking about it. I guess the answer seemed pretty obvious, so I feel this is going to be a little anticlimactic, unless uh, Quarantino had a uh, a particular take that was non-obvious. You want me to you read mine? Yeah, let's read yours. Let's do it. All right. So my my here's here's my explanation. Joe uh, states that he cannot use his normal men for the diamond heist. He only uses Vic because he just got out of the joint and is short on regular work. Everyone else is a lower-level crook, an old-timer, or has been out of town for a while. Thus, the members of the team are the bench players, or the reserves. Also, a dog is sometimes a pejorative term for a thug or a crook. So thus, the members of the heist 
are the reservoir dogs. Wow, I like that. That's good. That's way better than mine. Mine. Well, what's was, yours? Uh, we'll read yours. Far up. less insightful. Uh, well, the dogs, I think, is the obvious. Uh, I think you and I both agree that that's sort of a reference to the thugs, the crooks, you know, as being uh, sort of a, uh, I guess, a legitimate uh, euphemism for criminals, you know. Uh, the reservoir, I just, I, I went to the literal. I couldn't think of anything else. So I was, uh, you know, like meaner than a junkyard dog. I was thinking, well, maybe you need some dogs just to patrol a reservoir so frat guys don't <laughs> take a piss in it or raccoons don't die in it or something like that. You know, that's all yeah. I could come up with. And maybe they're just meaner than junkyard dogs or, Well, know. there was that instance where, uh, I mean, was it a reservoir in California or somewhere? Portland, the, Was it Portland where the manager caught a guy pissing in it and he drained the whole reservoir? Yeah. It, was, it, it was like an open reservoir. To. Yeah, everybody I – mean, the, the city of Portland, which I'm sure is chock full of germ phobes and, uh, you know, uh, all those kind of hypochondriac sort of folks we get in our modern – landscape this today uh even they said hey man all right you know it's like what uh less than a pint of piss and you know millions of gallons of water uh i think the chemicals can take care of it uh even the even the citizens of portland was like that's a little bit of an overreaction because you wouldn't need any you wouldn't need any chemicals to take care of it it's a little urea it's a, a sterile solution of urea it's not going to. It's uh, not going to. Birds shit in the reservoir. I mean, it's just an open body of water. So there's all yeah. kinds of uh, bacteria and who knows what that gets they, in there. They so. they they uh, spike drinking water with little mini crustaceans. Oh really? Eat the bacteria. Yeah. So whenever you drink tap water, you're drinking a bunch of crustaceans. These tiny little out. This tiny little crustacea. Well, I tell you what. I'm not. I'm not drinking any fluoridated water because that's the greatest communist plot ever perpetrated upon the united states i only drink uh when i drink whiskey it's pure grain alcohol that's all i yeah but that still has water in it never mind all right little dr (laughs) strange love reference missing yet anyway no it's not missing me so what is what is quentin tarantino's we're we're way off we're way off off. i thought we would have never i thought mine was so obvious that it had to be right no, yours is awesome, but that's the that's not even close. We would have yeah. never guessed it in a million years. So All right, what is when it? Quentin Tarantino was working in a video store, whatever video store it was, uh, probably like a Scarecrow video. It, it seems that's the only kind of like nerdy uh, movie rental store that would have suited him. Uh, somebody was asking some about like for movie recommendations or something. And he was like, uh, have you seen L'Enfant or Avoir L'Enfant, which in French means goodbye baby or something. Mm -hmm. And he said it in such a way that the guy completely misheard him. He's like, nah, I don't want to see any Reservoir Dogs. That's really? Yeah, that's it. That's that's what I read. That's weird. That's really weird. Avoir L'Enfant. I don't see how he got Reservoir Dogs out of that, but maybe he was doing a really poor high school french translation of what quentin tarantino said or something so yeah no i probably wouldn't we probably wouldn't have come across that maybe it was hinted at during the video rental scene in the movie which um, one was that i'm just joking there was no video oh, okay. rental store Dying. scene 
All right. Well, I'm uh, falling behind here, so let me get to the plot rundown. Uh, the story looks at what happens before and after, but not during, a botched jewelry store robbery organized by Joe Cabot, played by Lawrence Tierney. Mr. White, played by Harvey Keitel, is a career criminal who takes a liking to newcomer Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth, and enjoys a showing and enjoys showing him the ropes. Mr. Pink, played by Steve Buscemi, is a weaselly loner obsessed with professionalism. Mr. Blonde, played by Michael Madsen, has just gotten out of jail after taking the rap on a job for Cabot. He's grateful for the work, but isn't the same person he used to be. While Mr. Blonde goes nuts during the heist, the thieves are surprised by the sudden arrival of the police, and Mr. Pink is convinced one of their team is a cop. So who's the rat? What do they, what, uh, what do, they do about Mr. Blonde? And what do they do with Mr. Orange, who took a bullet in the gut and is slowly bleeding to death? And that's kind of it. It's the greatest heist movie that never shows the heist, which I thought is sort of an yeah. interesting hallmark of this film. And it's uh, really, it's really the way they cut up the story is really effective. There's there's one scene where there's a, there's a flashback in a flashback. I'm trying to remember where that was. Uh, let's see. There's uh, I don't remember actually. Oh well, there's not. I, okay, there's so many. There's layers of back. Oh, you get there, the backstory. The is I think it's the the rather the only part that I think is sort of a misstep in the film is the rather uh, l- lengthy section of the commode story. Though the end, it sort of pays off. I think there's a flashback within a flashback in that. Uh, you know what I liked segment. about the commode story? I, I was watching that scene, uh, I guess, with a little bit of heightened sensibility, is that he's telling the story in that loud bar to uh, Joe and nice guy Eddie and uh, Mr. White. And then it's a fake story. He's rehearsed it, rehearsed telling it, and uh, has got all the nuance down. He never did that actual event. He never... You know, that wasn't his story he was given. That was uh, uh, just an anecdote to make him seem more legitimate as a criminal. So well, I was thinking of the flashbacks to him working with his uh, undercover cop coach. Well, that's what, what I was talking part about. of it. But then you get the scene where he's actually in his own story or in the fake story that never happened. And he goes into the bathroom at the train station. I didn't mm-hmm. think L.A. Because he's there with station. that hippie chick. Running yeah. some uh, marijuana. And he has a little baggie. And I was looking at the bathroom, and the bathroom is sterile white. There's, it looks completely unused. There's nowhere. It's not, it doesn't look like a real bathroom. And it's interesting because his, I guess his cop mentor, the black guy, I don't even know if he has a name, says, you got to remember everything about this bathroom. You got to remember if some lowlife fucker sprayed diarrhea all over the toilet bowl. And you look at that scene and like it's just Chris, like that bathroom is just completely sanitary. It wasn't, it no, wasn't very realistic. Yeah. And then uh, the story the cops are telling see, seems inane. And I don't know if that was meant to be the case or not. Like he didn't. He didn't rehearse what the cops were talking about. So, you know, it was just something about, uh, like, holding up, like, pulling over some Mexican couple and one of the guys didn't understand English or something like that. And yeah, it was a misunderstanding I, about him pulling out his registration when he was being told to put his... I thought I thought the portrayal of the cops there were pretty good. They got the they had the mustaches and... Oh, yeah. Disdain <laughs> for the public. I thought, God, it was, I thought it was a pretty good... Uh, plus, I found that cops and stuff, they're usually pretty good storytellers. Because they're sort of sociable jockey guys. 
Yeah. They're pretty good sitting around, uh, you know, BSing each other. I always wonder, though, why cops have the fucking mustache. I, I don't ever understand that. It's, it's, uh. Why, why do Rastafarians have the dreadlocks? It's just part of the. Oh. It's part of the society. But every time I see a guy with just a mustache, mm-hmm. asshole blares in my ear. It's just like a giant sign over the dude's head, you know, that just flashes asshole. I, I've never met a likable dude with a mustache. They've always been kind of pricks like a cop. I, I don't know what the deal is. I can never figure that out. When a guy has a mustache, I'm like, uh-oh, beware, you know, be on your toes. He's going to be a dick. And they usually are. <laughs> I don't know. Prove me wrong. Uh, I'd love to be proved sometimes, wrong. Sometimes. 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 Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've yeah. thought about doing mustache. Uh, there's Movember. It's, it's, sort it's, of a, uh, it's sort of a hipster thing at the moment, stashing yeah, it up. There's there's Movember. You can grow a mustache for charity in November. For well, I do have cancer. a mustache, and so do you. Yeah, but you it's with it. a beard. With a beard, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's not a very full mustache. I would never attempt to sport it around without a beard. Yeah, I can't really grow a huge bushy stash. Yeah, I think I, I, I chew on mine, so it doesn't get really long where it hangs <laughs> gross. down That's gross. Over, your, over your lip. Uh, so, what else I liked about the bathroom scene was... I never quite understood the scene until I watched a little bit this last time, but he goes and he hits the hairdryer thing. Mm-hmm. And then all the cops are giving him this just evil eye. And I was like, are they on to him? Did they figure him out? And even the dog's looking at him. No, it's just he interrupted their story mm-hmm. with the fucking hairdryer or hand dryer. And they just look at him. Like, pissed off, like, hey, man, you know, I was trying to tell a story here. And uh, then the hairdryer turns off, and then they go back to their story. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, so. no, I mean, it's an interesting part. It's, I guess it's sort of the more, some of, probably the simplest part of the movie. Because, I mean, so much of this movie is about the interplay of, of the different members of this heist group. I think it's really interesting with the different motives everybody has. And I guess that's all the interplay, which was, makes this movie really exciting and the it's not so much the fact that tim roth is undercover it's just more about the dynamic between these yeah. different characters and you know how that dynamic shifts when the shit hits the fan which i, I just right. think is i think it's just i think every character is so well drawn it's just amazing that uh, tarantino was able to do this on his first movie it's just right. it sort of blows your mind well it's tarantino is a uh I mean, he he has some extremely well-wrought directing styles, but his writing, I think, is the most important aspect of what he does. It carries his films uh, because he's his films are character-based. Uh, there's action, and the stories are incredibly intricate and interwoven and layered, but he really like centers them or anchors them specifically to characters, and that's why through Reservoir Dogs, each segment of the film is broken up into its character, you know, its titular character. So you get, you know, Mr. White, and then you get that whole story, and Mr. Blonde, and Mr. Orange. And, well, it, uh, it starts with the breakfast scene, which is just, it's just a, a huge, it's like, it's about eight minutes of just great dialogue. And oh, some yeah. really, some really brave camera work, where he's blocking the shots and putting people's heads in the way, and sort of, in a way, sort of... Uh, paneling the shot like a comic book where he's, right. uh he takes somebody's head and like blocks out two-thirds of the uh frame so you just see like a basically like a one-to-one frame 
of the person speaking. And there's the whole the classic tipping scene. Oh, yeah. Which uh, got me. Which got me, like, actually, you know, starting to mull over that whole idea about tipping and uh, people who don't tip and all that good stuff. And, uh, you know, trying to get into Mr. Pink's head. I was like, what is he, like a fucking libertarian, you know? What's his trip? (laughs) Is he like a Ron Paul kind of dude? Is that his story, you know? Uh, Well, I think he, you know, he sees, he's somebody who can see sort of the weird things about society but he's sort of an asshole so he doesn't feel like he needs to play along anyways because i've often thought about tipping and how sort of a screwy idea it is and you only have to travel to different parts of the world where they don't do it to realize what a weird convention it is i always like that story you told me about a japanese tour book or guidebook for the U.S. and maybe you can paraphrase it for me. I, well, I think I, I've talked about it on on one of the podcasts before. Oh, Basically, they explain tipping very frankly and saying you'll you'll have the menu and it has the price of the item, but the but price of the, the item price. is that's not the price. The real price is twenty percent more, and you actually <laughs> need to, as strange as it may seem, you need to calculate it on your own <laughs> when you play the bill. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's kind of what it is, and, though, and, and almost regardless of service, too. That's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, and the way it's crept up over our lifetimes, it's gone from like 12 to 15, and now it's like, if you do less than 18, you're a dick now. Oh, I've been tip. sticking to 15 lately. I've been oh, holding the ground on 15 yeah, pre-tax. Yeah. That's sort of my... Uh, I think we really got to watch it. It's it's got the it's almost gotten to the point where it's twenty percent. Plus, it's always sort of insane on when you go out for drinks. You're supposed to tip like twenty five percent. Yeah, something. the last thing I want in this world is uppity waitresses thinking that they're you know owed a living working at a Applebee's. Uh, none of that shit. <laughs> well, it's got it. to the point where I don't go out to eat as much because you know God, I, got, I just hate. I feel like I'm getting ripped off a little bit on the tip sometimes. I've tipped incredibly, but that's because uh, I'm at the bar and I know the bartender and I've been drinking for three hours and he hands me a bill that's like 12 bucks. Uh, oh, you yeah. know, so yeah, then I, then I pony him then, about. Then you tip like 100%. 200, about 200% on that one. That's usually yeah. what I go on that. So. You know, I mean, that's what it's meant. That's what you're meant to do. Well, I, I like the, the scene because what it's doing or what Tarantino's doing basically with all these 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 criminals or these archetypes of of heist noir if you want to call that a genre is he's humanizing them in a way that film never really did i think with these sort of ancillary conversations that don't set up or add to the story but they add to the characters and they add to the interaction and uh you get a ton of this you get these little ancillar stories like uh the one about lady e uh, super glue oh. her her dude's wiener to his stomach with wacko yeah, glue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, I, it's just uh, it's unique, and I don't think I can't really think of any instance prior to that point where he spends a lot of time humanizing the characters and sort of making them seem nice. One thing I like about the the scene I talk about at the beginning, which is where Harvey Keitel explaining uh, to Tim Roth his crowd control job because that's his job during the high yeah is it sort of shows yeah. him as a criminal which i, I right. thought was really nice and the movie usually talks about people's actual criminal behavior except for the very end that usually talks about it off screen so the criminal activity took place um 
took place outside of the view of the camera. You see Mr. Pink shooting some cops and stuff. And you see, well, that's uh, kind of an intense scene because I wasn't really sure what to think of Mr. Pink prior to that because Mr. Pink seems like he's overcompensating a bit for – he seems like he's maybe new to crime or he's not really that hard or he's trying to make up for something. But then you see him in action and then you realize that he – pretty much is not a rookie at this he's he's uh a little sociopathic but uh that scene where he's running down the street and he pulls the chick out of the car and then the cops come around the corner and he unloads on him uh yeah he's a pretty serious dude there's like no panic going on i didn't detect any panic at least so and the same with harvey Keitel. you can tell with larry or, or mr white you know, the way he sort of has sort of a father-son relationship with uh, Freddie. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Orange. Um, I mean, that's I always like that because no matter what, if somebody's a criminal or a businessman or whatever, there's there's a multiple, there's facets to everybody. You know, and, you know, sometimes it's it's nice to classify people as good or bad. The truth is that everybody's a shade of gray. Just some people are more black than others. Yeah, and well, it's nice to see. I, I, I get. I don't. I, I think the reason that at least I that these kind of movies or at least criminal stories or high stories are, are really interesting is because the people that you're watching are daredevils. They're like extreme skiers or uh, you know mountain climbers or uh, skydivers. Uh, they're taking a risk that we couldn't really ever fathom as a civilian. I suppose the the whole like you're putting your life and the rest of your life on the line for a quick buck and, and other I, other people's lives and other people's lives and I always think you know they're probably not as well compensated as you would think criminals you wonder if, what the compensation is I mean uh, Joe says it's real juicy real juicy by real Mr. Juicy. White. But yeah. what was it really? I mean, if you think about life in prison, I mean, versus a week work of the planning and and doing the job, I mean, it'd have to be a pretty high number for me to go I, with it. I wouldn't do it for even a hundred thousand dollars. No way. I mean, I I don't even no, know. No, not a hundred grand. I mean, you just uh, amortize that, and it's pretty weak pay for the yeah. risk. Right. I mean, if it was. 30 million and you know you could manage to live on that 30 million yeah oh man but then see i would be all consumed by the laundering and how uh to clean the money and you know where to put it and the whole uh, the whole financing of your lifestyle with dirty money see that would even bother me and i'd be constantly paranoid well i mean if you knew how to manage it if you really could pretty much get away with it with $30 million and you might have to shoot some civilians and some cops, would you do it? Uh, Maybe. I don't think so now. I might do it. Really? If I, if I knew I, I could don't, handle it. I don't think that that's what the reservoir dogs were getting paid. I mean, per. how how much money to make each little dot stop moving? There's, there's always a price. <laughs> I think they're doing it more for the rush. You uh, think so? More for the statement than they are actually for the money. I think the money is a perk 
of doing this kind of work. I read, I was watching I mean, something. I don't know if I see that for most of the characters. I only really see that for Mr. Blonde, that it's the rush that, that drives him. Because I was watching, I'm sorry to break your thought, but uh, I was listening to, there was a, what was it on uh, NPR, like um, uh, that Terry Gross show, I forget what it's called. She's she inter- one hot number. I don't miss her show. Uh, um, every yeah, day. I catch I like, her show. You know, day. I like the I like the girls with glasses, and um, <laughs> she was um, talking to a guy, a criminal, uh, like a behavioral criminologist, and he was talking about uh, you know doing like a pet type scanning on uh, you know uh, criminals' minds and like showing. Yeah differences from control groups in certain areas of activity and they're talking about like you know uh that sometimes some like some of the worst of the criminals they 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 naturally um are not very excitable they just don't get excited very easily so they have to sort of to get a rush they have to do really extreme stuff well you sort of see that from michael daredevil that's a daredevil mentality yeah i mean that's that's pretty common because he's so cool and he doesn't really get excited to that one scene where Harvey Cattell's about to blow his head off. Then he goes, "Woo! Really got my heart pumping!" Like he's really excited yeah. about it. You need to push it all the way to the edge just to get a little excitement out of life. And uh, I think there's a, certainly an element of that. But I don't necessarily see that in the other characters. I mean, maybe well, Tim Roth's character because you know he's doing the whole undercover cop thing. I was just going to add. I, I saw something on I don't know one of those endless channels of. Uh, quasi documentaries that you see on cable and it was about uh a mob guy who turned and uh became a rat and an undercover rat and lived that life for a year or two and uh didn't skip a beat he was just super into it he was into getting away with something that was his thing whether it was actually doing crime or turning on other criminals and ratting them out that rush of you know feeling like you're getting away with something and he was he was turned because they were gonna they offered him some deal you know if he would if he would uh, be an informant that they would uh you know put him in witness protection and all that good stuff so it's kind of it's like you yeah like you like you were talking about with uh mr blonde you know it's the they need a heightened level of excitement to get a rush out of it and what i liked about mr blonde is he shows up and he has a fucking milkshake. You know? <laughs> yeah, he like stopped. He stopped at the In and Out or something after the heist, and was with like, a cop in his trunk. Yeah, with a cop in his trunk, and he was like, eh, "I'm just gonna get something to eat. I'm hungry." And he you ate know? his fries. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This guy needs a lot to get him yeah, get right. his heart going. <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess the guy who played the cop, and I forget his name, uh, he actually asked. Michael Madsen to drive him around in the back of his trunk. And that was actually Michael Madsen's Cadillac, I guess. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah. To just sort of get that, you know, kind of do a little method acting, get himself in the uh, the, the whole uh, mode of being that, that cop. And get I him, guess get it, him a little, uh, get him a little uh, dazed on carbon monoxide. Yeah, I guess it sucked. I guess because uh, Michael Madsen drove down some alleyway with a bunch of potholes and stuff. And, <laughs> so it was totally unfun, you know. So, uh, let's see. We've talked about some of the characters. Uh, I guess I, I like Joe. Joe Joe was an interesting character. Pretty hardcore. Oh. Uh, I don't see how he survived as long doing what he was doing. 
Uh, well, he was just a, I mean, he wasn't doing the heist. He was just a, a gangster, basically, that had a, you know, an organization in SoCal. Sounds I like did like good size one. how he had two giant elephant tusks behind him in his office. I thought that oh, was yeah. a, nice, a nice touch. What a, what a complete dickhead he is, you know. <laughs> but really, this movie is... Elephant tusks in his office. I love there's like there's two great office scenes, you know, where you can see she's bringing people in the whole Michael Madsen scene, which is just great from beginning to end. And actually, let me just play a, a little bit from Michael Madsen in Joe's office. Daddy, did you see that? What? Guy got me on the ground. He tried to fuck me. You wish. You sick bastard, Vic. You tried to fuck me in my father's office. Look, Vic, whatever you want to do in the privacy of your own home, go to it. But don't try to fuck me. I mean, I, I don't think you're that way. I like you a lot, buddy, but I don't think you're that way. Listen, if I was a butt cowboy, I wouldn't even throw you to the posse. No, you wouldn't. You'd keep me for yourself. You know, four years fucking punks up the ass, you'd appreciate a piece of prime rib when you see it. Might break you in, <laughs> nice guy, but it'd make you my dog's bitch. Ain't that a sad sight, Daddy? Man walks into prison, a white man walks out talking like a fucking nigger. You know what? I think it's all that black semen been pumped up your ass so far. Now it's back into your fucking brain. It's coming out your mouth. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, I was reading here that the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, uh, they do dramatic script readings uh, uh-huh. every so often. And in February 2012, they actually did a dramatic script reading of Reservoir Dogs with some actors some fairly famous actors uh but they did it with all black actors they did it with like lawrence fishburne was mr white uh cuba gooding jr is mr orange and then some other folks and uh, for the the oh holdaway i guess uh mr orange's uh I guess guy on the inside, the guy, the cop who's showing him the yeah, Tim Roth character. Yeah. yeah, they used a white guy who was Patton Oswalt. <laughs> so, <laughs> There's so uh, much great racial epitaphs, but go ahead. Well, it's just I'm not quite sure what the effect was. It's not really described here, but it was sort of an interesting. You want to say um, uh, antonym for the entire uh, film to go and you know because he's they're all white guys in this film. And they're yeah. all throwing around the word nigger and uh, talking, I guess, a lot of shit about, you know, as you as you would expect, right? I mean, you, you know, they're not racially sensitive folks. No, uh, no. They use the term wetback. I think Joe used the term like jungle jumper or something at one yeah, point. Yeah. Black guy. Yeah. 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 I, thought that, I thought that was all. I, I really liked the sort of. I don't know, sort of longshoreman like talk. I always find that really satisfying for some reason. Maybe because maybe it speaks to the white supremacist in me. <laughs> I don't think no. I'm, I'm not. You don't g- think so? I think it, I just, I just I find it really enjoyable to see these guys talking so casually in these uh, you know racial slurs. I I just find it really powerful. Well, it's a generational thing. I think uh, you know people of of. Uh, maybe the previous generation are st- that stuff still creeps up on them. You know, they're still kind of uh, beholden to a little bit of that attitude. And it's just, it's, it's, you don't take it. You don't, I don't know. I don't really take it personally. Uh, is this movie set in 92 or is it set in the eight mid eight? Oh, it's, 
It's definitely 92 because I was wondering that myself because all the cars really looked vintage, like more vintage than 92. I was like, yeah, really? it was looked that more like, like 86 or something to me. Was there like that many big two door American cars roaming the streets of California in 92? Uh, but what gave it away as being in the modern era is uh, Nice Guy Eddie's cell phone. Which was one of those huge fucking like uh, Motorola's oh, okay. back in uh, back in the day because he has that big oh, Motorola cell phone. I thought that was just a wireless phone that was in the office, but yeah, oh, that's right. He was in the car talking on it. Yeah, no, yeah, he comes running into that. the. It's a mortuary where the film takes place. And oh, that's right. There's a hearse under some. Um, yeah, there's a hearse. Plastic. There's there's caskets uh, around the edge, which I never figured out before. I was paying a little bit more attention to the film. And, oh, I didn't notice the caskets. Yeah, they're kind of there uh, on that corner where uh, Mr. Blonde gets shot. You see him kind of standing up there. The parking lot's pretty exposed, and they're pretty laissez-faire about dragging the cop through there and whatnot. Sam's hot car lot. Starting to look. Like yeah, Sam's they don't want to be Sam's hot. God, there's just so, so much great dialogue. It just blows me away. It's uh, which is sort of what I think Tarantino is sort of known for now. It's that, oh yeah, it's it's interesting because that's the great scenes of Quentin Tarantino. It's not action. He doesn't really do action. There's hardly any action in this movie at all. Uh, very little. There's a couple of guys getting killed. Uh, there's the scene with Mr. Pink. There's the scene with uh, uh, Mr. White. Mr. Orange's getaway it has some action in it, but there's really not a lot of action. Or oh, Mr. In, Brown in, getting killed. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, Pulp Fiction. I don't remember a lot of action in that. Uh, same with you know the Kill Bill mi- movies. Jackie Brown is really toned down. That's a really mellow film. Yeah, he did seen get it. a little more serious. It's interesting that uh, 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 Quarantino. I mean, uh, Tarantino is in this movie. His freshman effort, and he gives himself a juicy little role. Yeah, as one of well, the minor he, colors. I think he. You know, he was going to do this movie himself with some friends. Uh, I think he actually wanted to play Mr. Pink before they got Steve Buscemi to take it over. Oh, really? I, I, I guess I sort of saw like he was sort of making Mr. Orange an idealized version of, of himself. Because, you know, it's Mr. Orange's apartment. There's a lot of comic book sort of geeky stuff in there. And when he's yeah. talking to his, um, his uh, uh, handler in the other under undercover PD, he uh, calls Joe. He's sort of like, Oh, the uh, thing, the thing. And, which and is, the, the handler doesn't real recognize that at all, which is so. funny because then Joe, that means that Joe looks like, uh, uh Michael Chiklis of the shield. Cause he actually did play the thing in fantastic four. Yeah. They, they got a little bit of a similar <laughs> look. They got one of those necks. that just sort of goes right from their shoulders, you know, sort of, uh, not a big neck. I mean, a big neck in the sense that there's not a lot of definition between the head and the shoulders. Right, right. So when did you first see Reservoir Dogs? When did you first Oh, watch it? I, didn't, I didn't see it when it came out. I was wondering if you actually saw it in the theaters. I didn't see it till like, on probably on video cassette sometime in the college years. It's uh, sort of a but, shame. Budge was brought it when I first met Will, our friend Will Budge. He uh, brought it up. He was like, uh, have you seen, you know, Reservoir Dogs? And I'm like, no. He's like, oh, man, you got to watch it. And his whole, I guess, the 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 part that he was, he found most intense or uh, controversial or, uh, I don't know, uh, 
important was that ear cutting scene. And then oh, I'm, yeah. I'm trying I to think now about be, the torture scene because I haven't, I haven't, I've I've been kind of uh, numbed over the past twenty years by cinema and like shit like Eli Roth's uh, Hostel, which I watched. Mm. It was hard to watch, but I, I did watch it, and uh, you know that kind of slasher cinema has gotten a lot more graphic since Reservoir Dogs came out. Uh, that well, torture I mean, scene seems seemed a little, and maybe I've seen it so many times, but it seemed a little uh, toned down from stuff that you're seeing nowadays. And maybe that's just me. I don't know. Well, I mean, the, the way that he films the uh, ear cutting scene is really very purposeful. I mean, you see Michael Madsen sort of, uh, hover over the uh, cop and actually you see him move the razor blade in the direction of his of the ear and michael madsen's black back blocks the the actual sh- cutting but in yeah. a, a, in, above that then the while the actual cutting's occurring the uh the camera pans to the wall it pans uh right i mean left to uh just to a a wall and sort of holds the shot for three seconds while the ears being cut. Right. And then it pans uh, back and then, uh, Vic Vegas talking into the ear. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's sort of, I mean, it really pulls away from the, the gruesome scene. I thought it was rather conservative and a nice way to handle it. There was, a, I guess other takes where there was uh, more squirting blood and that kind mm. of thing that, uh, I was expecting like a, because the way they pulled out, I was expecting like an arc of blood to squirt through the scene. Really, yeah. I was thinking, but there was nothing like that. I thought it was really nicely handled and left the gore just off scene, which which I always appreciate. Yeah, you didn't need to see it. It was enough. You had enough empathy for the cop that you could feel the the horror without actually needing to see it, uh, which was almost worse. Which is another thing I liked about this movie. It leaves a ton up to the imagination, especially the heist. When Mr. Blonde's in there capping people willy-nilly. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you get sort of the secondhand account where, like, he apparently shot some black girl for no reason, you know, and they're commenting about it. Um, but he's, I mean, is is Mr. Blonde a full sociopath, or is he one of these guys that just needs more stimuli? I mean, that's kind well, of I what a serial killer is, is somebody who just needs to up the level of intensity to get anything out of their life, you know, so. Well, you're sort of describing the same thing, so that's, I guess that's what he is. Uh, more or less, yeah. He's a, He's a bit of a sociopath. Yeah. And cr- being a criminal allows him sort of a way to make money and get his kicks at the same time, which seems like a pretty good idea. I mean, why go kill hookers for free when you can uh, go kill people stealing something and get paid for yeah. it? I um, just thought. About how scary of an evening it would be to go hang out with Vic Vega. How ter- terrified. He'd be so ah. unpredictable, like going out to drink with him. Oh, my God. Yeah, you might get into a. I would guess if you go out to drink with him, you'll probably get in a brawl. Not with him, but he'll pick a fight and you'll be on his side. Have so you, you ever been be, out you with be somebody who's margin? I mean, really unpredictable, really like unfun to hang out with? Uh I've been with people like that who you, they get drunk and you're like I don't know what they're gonna do. I feel really we, weird about hanging out with them. They're gonna get into one some time. Shit. I was out with a friend of Ben's who had like a brother or something. We went out with, and that guy was just a crazy alcoholic, and he just got super drunk, and he was 
really weird. His eyes sort of were like an animal's eyes. And when you're talking to him, you're like, Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't want to know the places this guy wants to go in his life. Well, it was a little frightening. Yeah, I've been in like situations where I was like, "Is this going to end with somebody going to jail?" I mean, what? What? Yeah. You know, how did? No, I thought it, it very well could, especially when we got pulled over that night. But we nobody went to jail. Oh my god! Yeah, I just don't know how those. I mean, to me, that's what a night out with Vic Vega would would. would yeah, entail. a night out with Vic Vega would. You have about an equal chance of. Uh, uh, getting your dick sucked or getting your head stomped yeah. in. Yeah, like, is he going to, like, pull a gun on somebody? Is he going to, you know, do that, like, uh, f- are you, you know, fucking with people? Uh, there's, I always think of that scene in oh, No certainly. Country for Old Men where the, aunt, aunt, was it Anton Sugar, the, 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 the evil guy in that movie, uh, fucks with the uh, guy at the count at the gas station. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah, he yeah. plays that little game. And it's like that half fucking with you kind of thing. Like it seems like Vic Vega would be doing that to people all night. You yeah. go in there and like, uh, or the uh, Joe Pesci scene in Goodfellas, you know, where he just like, is he joking? Is he not joking? Is he really going to kill that guy? Is he not going to kill that guy? And just doing that all the time, you know, just unpredictable, chaotic bullshit that would just wear on you if you had to hang out with him all night. You know, you got to um, do a lot to earn his respect. Otherwise, he doesn't think much of you. Apparently, you gotta yeah. you gotta basically be Joe and nice guy Eddie, you know. Yeah, so. yeah, and those are the only people he has respect for. And even then, he's willing to throw a big monkey wrench in their in their heist just because oh, the people yeah. uh, 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 threw the threw the alarm. So exactly, yeah, he's a he's a tough guy to work with. He's he's uh as as a sugar said, you know, you got to pick the one right tool, and he's the right tool. For some very specific situations, and he'd be nice to have in your golf bag for those tough shots. Right. But uh, you, th- you pull him out on the wrong job, and you're in for some trouble. Right. Yeah. Well, interesting in the, I would call it the Quentin Tarantino uh, crime universe, which is uh, sort of a nebulous term for where all his movies are set. There's cross-pollination of characters. Uh, Vic Vega is was is the brother of Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction, played by John Travolta. And I think there was a time where Quentin Tarantino actually wanted to make a movie with those two guys called, like, the Vega Brothers or something like that. Oh, in, so, in, in his universe, he actually says those two are brothers? Uh, he, well, he doesn't say it in the movies, but the intention was He says was it that, privately? Yeah, that, and he was going to make okay. a movie about him. And then I mean, uh, Michael Madsen. The alliterative names. Oh, I guess they did. The, uh, the alliterative names with the V is pretty effective. You get so, that a little bit more could... in this movie with, uh, was it uh, Skagnetti? Seymour Skagnetti and Frank oh, yeah. Frigetta or some of these, these characters named off camera that you don't know who they are. But yeah, that, uh, what's it, the Stan Lee, the Peter Parker name and characters with the, the, the you know, first letter of both the first and the last name. Yeah, 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 it's always good to alliterate. It makes it easy to remember, which sort of goes, I think, this Tarantino ever talk about comic books at all? Or is he just a film uh, nerd? I think he's more of a film nerd. I think he appreciates yeah. comics, but he's not that big of a comic book guy. Okay. Uh, uh, the other thing I was going to mention is uh, Mr. White mentions Alabama. He was doing some jobs with Alabama. Alabama is the yeah. Patricia, Patricia Arquette character from True Romance, directed by Tony Scott, but written by Quentin Tarantino. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And, and then I didn't there's a, a when mention did True of, Romance come out. 
Was it before around the same movie? time? Yeah. Yeah. So his 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 movie his career just got rolling all of a sudden. And he, I think he mentions Marcellus in to Mister White too, or Mister Yeah, Mister White mentions Marcellus as something about oh. when they do talking about moving ice, moving moving diamonds, you know. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's interesting. There's a little bit of this synergy that he has going on with his. Uh, his other mainly Pulp Fiction and True Romance, but I thought that was kind you of... You wonder in his notes if there's some, there's like a sort of a background network that he set up a la Tolkien that we, yeah. we'll never see. <laughs> You'd find sat, the Quentin Tarantino Similiar in. What is that? Was that called the Similiar in or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's something like that where he's got all these interconnections between these crime groups and when he wants to write a story, he sort of finds a little niche and he's... Sets up shop there, so he always has a million directions to draw inspiration from. The L.A. crime metaverse of Quentin Tarantino. I mean, why not? I bet I bet you know, something might exist like that. You know what I find interesting is in Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, he spends a lot of time in, I don't know if it was the same diner, but that same style of diner. It looks like the 60s kind of Howard Johnson-looking diner with the... Uh, you know, rock uh, wall, the aggregate wall that that is very mid-century modern, uh, you know, the big windows. And, like, there's big scenes in both movies. There's the, you know, obviously there's the uh, Tim Ross in both of them, but he's, uh, he's in the diner with his, uh, was it Holdaway? Uh, you know, oh, he's talking, talking to about, his handler. Yeah, yeah with his handler. And then, of course, there's the big scene in Pulp Fiction, in that same style of diner. And I just okay. get this impression that Quentin Tarantino hung out at those all night diners writing the scripts for these movies because he pays such homage to them in both mm. movies. I, th- I find that kind of interesting. So but he I don't doesn't know use story. such a diner for the breakfast scene at the beginning. He uses like a real sort yeah, of no, shoddy no. cinder block place, yeah. which is sort of an interesting. I just love how the movie opens with all these criminals just walking across the parking lot to a couple of cars and they're all dressed in black suits with white you know black suits black ties (coughs) which is funny because i really doubt if there's any criminals working today who all walk around in black suits and black ties oh that must have been the morning before they did the heist that was the same morning okay it was all one day they decided to wear all the same outfit well you know that probably be pretty handy because then you wouldn't have any trouble. It's sort of like a military uniform. You know, you know who's friend and foe real easily by everybody. Well, I mean, maybe they had same. some sort of gimmick that they were using to get into the wholesaler. Uh, it's never uncovered uh, why they're all in the same kind of suit. You know, the only thing I could think of is it's a mortuary, and when morticians come out to retrieve bodies, they're always in, you know. Uh, Suits like that, so that was. Well, maybe they had a bunch of clothes like that there already, so they could just burn burn the clothes afterwards. Who knows? Yeah, it's not a bad idea. I wonder if there was a. um, Wonder if there was a. uh, uh, Wonder if it was also a crematorium, because they sort of call Uh, the place a dungeon. You you wonder if it's bigger than that? They could have burnt some of the evidence up. It's hard to know. It's unsaid. So, anyway, uh, I don't know. Is there any uh, other specific things we'd like to cover about Reservoir Dogs? Uh, well, why don't, we, uh, why don't we read Ebert and see if it brings anything to mind? Mm-hmm. 
So um, Ebert reviewed this movie uh, when it came out back in 92, gave it a solid two and a half stars, which I think is that a splat for uh, um, Ebert. Anyways, uh, let me read a few things from there and we'll see what we think. I don't think we're going to agree with him too much. He says he starts it off with now that now that we know Quentin Tarantino can make a movie like Reservoir Dogs, it's time for him to move on and make a better one. Make weird... Pulp Fiction, I guess. That's what he wanted. I guess, <laughs> I guess so. I wonder if he liked Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah, he says this he film has an obviously talented writer and director and one of the best casts you can imagine. Uh, he goes through and talks about each of the characters rather positively, um, which makes me think that the characters' personalities were ex- pretty clearly explained to the viewer. Which I, I think is the case. Well, he says a couple of things. He talks about how uh, Joe and Madsen are really the only tough guys, and then everybody else seems like bluffers. Which uh, I kind of had the opinion of with regard to Mister Pink, but then they showed the the scene where he's breaking out, and then I got a little bit of a different opinion, uh, especially when he showed back up at the mortuary. So I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 interesting take he has. Go ahead. Anyways, uh, he after talking about the characters, he says, this movie feels like it's going to be terrific. But Tarantino's script doesn't have much curiosity about these guys. He has mm-hmm. an idea weird. and trusts the idea to drive the plot. Um, I guess I'm not sure what he's getting at there. Um, he goes on to say exactly what you said about uh, the others. They like Turney and Madsen, but he didn't. He thought the other characters weren't. By bluffers, does he mean not believable as career Well, no, no, I think what he means is uh, that they're kind of soft on the inside. Uh, They're acting tough, but they're not really tough at heart. And, you know, to be honest, uh, Mr. White does kind of lose his toughness when he succumbs to Mr. Orange's sympathies. You know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't stay hard, I guess, for the situation. And I think that I think that uh, I think the problem is, you know, with sort of the bleeding heart that uh, um, Ebert is, he doesn't realize that people that do terrible things are also human beings at the same time. They still love their mom, except for like well, Madsen or maybe yeah. Turney's character. The rest of them, you know. They maybe had kids. They've had loves. They're lost. They still kill people. Well, that's why I always think doesn't of, mean they're deranged maniacs on top of I, everything else. I always think of Scorsese's Pesci characters, uh, plural. You know, because like in Casino and Goodfellas, uh, the Pesci guy always plays like a mama's boy. You know, he's always really into his kids or his mom, making his mom happy. And then he goes and stabs some dude to death in his trunk or, you know, beats him to death with a baseball bat or something like that. But uh, very human characters, nonetheless, they can totally separate out their craft, if you will, from uh, the other side of their personality. They can make that cut, you know, it doesn't bleed in. They compartmentalize. Yeah. their life and I, I i just don't think that uh i don't think ebert i don't think he could i don't think he can understand people like that that can have dark sides and light sides at the same time well so he just calls them he calls them bluffers yeah Is it, because I mean, they have some that that harvey Keitel needs like a son type character in his life 
Maybe he lost a son or maybe he always wanted one but couldn't because of his lifestyle. Just because that, there's no way he could be an actual criminal. So he has to be a bluffer. Maybe think it's, it's a real false just theory. a prejudice that as movie goer, moviegoers we always have where we expect clear-cut black and white characters. But when you get a, dis- a likable, despicable character, uh, it tears you a little bit. And it's like, why should I? You know, it's sort of the, I guess, the Dexter syndrome. A likable so, serial killer. Why would Ebert... What Ebert wants black and white characters in his movies? I've never known him to want that. If it was if they were all black and white cardboard cutouts, if they're all Madsen, he'd be dogging the movie for having a bunch of sociopaths. How believable is that? I don't know. It's, I think it's a real lack of insight by Ebert there. Anyways, uh, he goes on to talk more about the filmmaking. He says, uh, uh, "Tarantino has a um, Tarantino has a confident kinetic way of shooting action," which I thought it was. <laughs> seemed a little more i mean there's a couple scenes that uh you know i don't know i I think they could have been some of the action scenes could have been i don't know they seemed a little sloppy like the chase scene with uh mr pink just some of the scenes the cops running it seems so simple it's well that's i didn't i I didn't really get the sense of it being an actual chase it didn't seem well i don't don't know know, it seemed a little false it seemed a little cheap a little a little sophomoric there's uh, anyway. some great footage, and I forget the, the names of the individuals or what the event was called. And it was in the mid-90s, mid to late oh. 90s. And it was these two goons. I think they were yeah. bodybuilders. Oh, they were yeah. all roided up. and They had body armor on. Yeah, they watched the movie Heat a few too many times. And, yeah, they got body armored up, had an arsenal in their trunk, and knocked over, I want to say, like a Bank of America in uh, the uh, what's the valley there the San Fernando Valley Van Nuys or something like that and then since they were so fucking armed to the teeth you know the cops couldn't approach them Uh, and so they had to basically you know cordon off the uh, block evacuate everybody out of there and then go in and try to take these goons down and uh that action <laughs> wasn't wasn't very choreographed. It was pretty. It was it was kind of gross and simplistic, sort of like you saw here with Mr. Pink escaping. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have a problem with that action scene at all. Yeah. You know? Well, maybe so. the, maybe my under maybe I'm just like Ebert's expecting a little more Hollywood from his criminals. I guess maybe I was expecting a little more Hollywood in my action scenes. And yeah, it sounds like I maybe that's it. a that's a uh, that's my fault. Not. Well, for a guy who's who prays at the altar of cinema, you would think that yeah, maybe Tarantino would have a little bit more insight or could uh, mine a few more exploitation films for you know so, some some better put together action sequences. Well, you think but, about the Kill Bill movies and where all that action is so incredibly stylized. But in a way, the way you explain it, I sort of appreciate it more now. Um, he goes on, he makes a mistake. You see where he doesn't take good notes when he's watching a film. Because he says, Madsen st- sadistically toys with a character he thinks is a cop. He's yeah, toying with an actual cop. Weird. Yeah, so his, yeah, that, that his, doesn't make any sense. his notes failed him there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he says the movie ends on a couple notes of horrifying poetic justice. I don't know if they're horrifying so much. There is something weird about this standoff it ends like a mexican standoff but it's not actually a mexican standoff no no it's a chain reaction and is what it is what it's almost it doesn't really make sense because um 
Joe's got his gun trained on Mr. Mr. Orange. Uh, Mr. Orange, because he's rightly sussed out that he's the rat. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, Mr. White, Harvey Gaitel, has his gun trained Joe. on Joe because he wants to protect his this character he's become like a father figure to. And Nice Guy Eddie um, has it on Mr. Uh, White. And Yeah, and, and Nice Guy Eddie has it on Mr. White. So the only outcome of that gunfight, if everybody files, fires simultaneously, is Nice Guy Eddie's left not shot. But somehow uh, Harvey Keitel's character, Mr. White, ends up shooting both Joe and Nice Guy Eddie. Yeah, I didn't slow down the, 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 the scene. I watched I'm it sure twice because that's what happens. He, okay. They all shoot the first shot at the same time, but after that first shot, Mr. White turns and shoots and snipes guy Eddie. Yeah, so it's okay. a little bit of a... It's like a Mexican standoff, but it's not a Mexican standoff. I, no, not really. I don't know. It didn't totally make sense. You don't notice it the first time, and... Uh, anywho, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. it's, a it's not It's um, not a uh, good, bad, and the ugly finale. That's, that's certain. So, uh, let's see here. Um, you know, we... He t- waxes on about M- Madison's character. He says he has the kind of really menacing screen presence that only few actors achieve. But I think that's really only that's sort of Madison's only real note. He plays sort of these menacing characters. You know, I, know I always get Michael Madsen confused with Tom Sizemore. I haven't a clue why. I, I don't know why I do that. But uh, I, I maybe it's just at some point like I skewed their names together or something and uh anyway but i always find it because they're definitely different dudes you know so um anyway so basically so he goes on you think that all right there's there's no more ebert couldn't make any more mistakes in this review but the very next sentence he goes tarantino himself is also an interesting actor he could play great crazy villains what i he doesn't okay that's weird (laughs) So he praises Tarantino's acting ability, which is fine, I guess, in this movie. But what did you see uh, from *Dust Till Dawn*? No, I didn't see that. He does actually play a great, a great crazy villain in that film because he plays Mm. this uh, sexually perverted bank robber with George Clooney. Uh, It's kind of disturbing. There's a few disturbing scenes where he like starts. I don't know, going after this this hostage they have, which is like a middle-aged teller from the bank they robbed. And Mm. then you get the feeling that he rapes her, and then like he kills her. But you don't see it. Mm. You just see the aftermath. It's really kind of disgusting and disturbing. Does he eat her? (laughs) No, it's not that bad. (laughs) (laughs) So he pulled his punch at the end. Yeah, 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 exactly. He had some humanity left in him. Uh, So anyways, he he wraps it up saying that uh, this movie's quite an achievement for a first-timer. I think we could all agree on that. And uh, and he say, and he says that Tarantino doesn't do much with his characters, except to let except to let them talk too much. Well, that's not the point of this film. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, Ebert, as we've seen quite a number of times, maybe he's reviewing a few too many movies, and he sort of phoned this one in. Well, I'm trying to wonder what film he was because Ebert always. Uh, reviewed films within the context that they were made. Uh, he, he, you know, so if you're watching a Pixar movie, then he compares it to all other Pixar movies that were made. So I'm trying to think of what film stood out in his mind. I mean, he, he refers to Robert De Niro in the review. 
so maybe he was thinking Scorsese films uh, as sort of the uh, you know the gold standard for what Tarantino was trying to achieve. Uh, I don't think of it necessarily that way. I think of it. I was trying to figure out why I liked this movie so much, and I think it's because it it's uh, very cognizant of pop culture. Uh, you know, it it was sort of uh, at the peak of the slacker generations. You know, our Generation X's sensibilities about pop culture, which we were, uh, I guess, stereotypically highly tuned into. Uh, whether that's true or false, I'm not sure. There is there is uh, a lot of pop culture. Let me play one bit uh, where they're talking about pop culture. Okay, let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about this coup who's a regular fuck machine. Now I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? It's a lot. So one day, she meets this John Holmes motherfucker, and it's like, whoa, baby. I mean, this cat is like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. All right, now she's getting a serious dick action. And she's feeling something she ain't felt since forever. Pain. Pain. Chew, Toby, chew. It hurts. It hurts her. It shouldn't hurt her. You know, her pussy should be bubbling up by now. But when this cat fucks her, it hurts. It hurts just like it did the first time. You see, the pain is reminding a fuck machine what it was once like to be a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I that's, love that's that classic. stuff. That's, a, that's the classic uh, uh, little bit of conversation from this movie that I think everybody... Uh, remembers you know the like a virgin yeah i love that because i used to engage in that ridiculous banter with people uh i remember i had a whole thing uh where i was stupefied about the brady bunch Uh, everybody knows the brady bunch was i don't know when it aired but it was rerun when i was a kid so i watched it a lot and especially in the summers when i was you know home by myself babysitting myself Uh, i'd watch a ton of uh I guess Nickelodeon TV land or whatever it was called back then. And one thing that always confounded me about the Brady bunch was like, okay, Mr. Brady's an architect, right? Isn't that this, that's his occupation. Yeah. He designs houses for a living yet for whatever reason he designs and builds a house that, uh, where six children have to share two bedrooms. It's like, what the fuck? You know, I thought I, I couldn't ever, figure out he's he's a terrible architect he, he can't even you know build a working house for his family uh, well don't, anyway. don't uh don't the, the eldest child move to the attic later on in yeah well he moves to the attic and then he moves down into mr brady's uh studio like he moves all like greg brady moves oh, like all he? around yeah because the the house isn't working because uh Greg Brady can't fucking design a couple other bedrooms to stick onto the place. Look, you know, you know it's the seventies, and you know you had the oil embargo, and the, the you know the economy really tanked there, and he just didn't have the money to move up to a bigger place. There's nothing they. Could, it was a one income family, and he worked Shit, from he, home most. He, of the he time. couldn't even build another bathroom to stick onto one of the bedrooms, so they wouldn't even at least you know boys and girls could have their own bathroom. He couldn't even figure that one Shit, out. Shit, man, he was it. already on the docket for that maid's income. They were their finances. Were well, that's switched. the other thing that totally blew my mind. Mrs. Brady didn't work. She was a stay-at-home mom, yet she still had to fucking have Alice, you know, following her around all day. It was like, come on, what are you? Yeah, doing you usually need to be pulling in mid upper six figures to afford a live-in maid. But as soon as you're making that, you get pretty used to having a couple of uh, people around the house. 
Yeah. Especially to help raise the kids. It's probably pretty nice. So I could relate to those sort of inane pop culture, uh, you know, ponderings. Uh, that well, was I definitely me at that time. I just love how he takes these characters he's drawn and makes them talk about inanity. And I, I, I don't know. I just really appreciate that. And uh, I mean, most of our life is filled with that sort of bullshit. But we well, never yeah. see it in, in movies necessarily. And it, I think it's really refreshing the way uh, uh, Tarantino sort of embraces that. And it's one thing that I really like about him. Well, it humanizes characters. It makes them, uh, you know, they get bogged down in the trivial, which is what we have to do pretty much 95% of our life. And uh, you don't ever see that in film. And, you know, rightfully so. It it doesn't do a lot for plot development and story development. But it's so sharply written. It could be really... It could be like listening to a podcast, you know, where you just yeah, you just put you to sleep and you're bored right. out of your gourd. Just fucking droning on about a film. <laughs> blah, 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 you really blah, needed blah, to stop to talking about it. Point you sobs. Half but, hour uh, ago, it's just yeah. so sharply written that it's entertaining. Uh, yeah, and it doesn't overindulge. That's the other thing I liked about it. And you know, the whole uh, the thing we haven't really talked about, and uh, we need to finish up, but the layering of the story itself, the the non a sequential storyline. Uh, it's, I think, an undervalued uh, storytelling. Um, maybe some people view it as cliche or uh, quirky or not what I'm looking for. Uh, cheap, maybe that's the, the word. But I, I, I like it. I, I like stories that are kind of cut up and layered on top of each other in a non-sequential manner. Uh, it kind of, you have to pay attention to them a little bit more. And, um, I can't think of a lot of films off the top of my head that engage in it. Uh, it's a little Rashomon, you know, uh, Pulp Fiction was that way, which I really enjoyed. Uh, then there's Memento, which is just kind of the ridiculous extrapolation of a Yeah, that's a little like more that. of a gimmick, but I mean, he, he, I like it. Tarantino finds his character stories more important than causality. And yeah. so when he wants to talk right. about a character, he talks about that character in different points of time, you know, in, you know, without, he doesn't kowtow to the linear storyline that took place. And I don't know. I, I think I find that really refreshing that you get to spend, you know, 15 minutes on each character. It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. It works well. And, uh, yeah, he Plus has it's only t- an hour and 40 minutes. So yeah. That's nice down to too. Business. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got to say, Tarantino hasn't really disappointed me, uh, since he, he, I've like, liked all his movies, uh, there hasn't been a lot. Yeah, of them, I've, I've, uh, I've generally liked them all. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I don't know what, but he does fixate on the word nigger. He just loves putting that in his movies. I don't understand why, but uh, he gets away with it, and uh, that's fine. You know, it works. But uh, it's 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 an interesting thing that he uh, find. I think he just likes to push buttons. Uh, at least yeah, that's yeah. Why. I think I think that's great. It's fun to push buttons. And push yeah. buttons in a way that makes you think about it because you react instantaneously to hearing it. And you're like, whoa, what the, Jesus Christ. It's like, you know, ah, everybody the 90s in the or the 2000s. Such, I know. Everybody's turned into such a fucking pussy. About well, like Django and Chain got a ton of shit for, you know, using nigger over 100 plus times I mean, when we did the count. Jesus and, Christ, that's set back in the slave yeah, know, days. What are they supposed to do? I don't know. Whitewash it. You know, it kind of Talk about owning African-Americans. Of, yeah, it reminds me of why uh, kids don't read Huckleberry Finn or uh, when I I already mentioned this in a podcast where uh, they whitewashed literally a uh, uh, old Bram Stoker 
story where they took that word out and replaced it. And uh, I'm just like, you know, can't we all be educated and learned enough to figure out that uh, uh, people wrote things or, you know, things are in context. They're always in context. And appreciate the context before you all overreact, please. You know, that'd be nice. We're all adults. So let's move on. Anyway. Well, as long as he doesn't use any epitaphs for white Caucasian men, I'm fine. Yeah, I don't like being called a cracker. There's nothing that makes my blood boil more than being called a honky cracker. I'll tell you that. <laughs> God, I wish he even knew what they meant, but I don't. So, anyway. Uh, anyways. All right. Uh, so, uh, so we all like that movie. So, let me see here. How have we, how we been doing on them? We've generally liked them. Well, let's see here. Last movie you didn't like. I kind of, you know what? I, 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 I'm not going to apologize for uh, my review, but I, I do need to say I was, when I watched the movie, I think it tainted the viewing. I was very much looking forward to be just being flat out entertained. And mm. I didn't have my art house thinking cap on for the film. And I just wasn't in the right mood, I think. And, uh, it did. I did overly sour on something that didn't deserve it, and so um, you know, well, just not a not a full apology, but just a, <laughs> I guess a mea culpa a little bit on that. Oh, uh, so. I wasn't looking for an apology necessarily, though. I think you know, if you see it sometime in the future, you might enjoy it more. Uh, what I wanted to say is that I decided let's see if I can find a movie that both of us won't like. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so sure, man. I, I may so, just. And I I've seen little bits like of it, it. It's, and we might, we might like it. We're really going to have to put on our our a classic cinema hats for uh-huh. next week's movie because we're going to go. I mean, we're called the cult of Matt and Mark, and I know we don't really. I don't feel like we're betrothed to classic cult movies, no. but I think we should probably see them every once in a while in our mix. So you know, one of the most classic cult directors is Russ Meyer. And one of his classic films, among his several, um, is Faster Pussycat Kill Kill from 1965. And I just felt that, you know, we should probably do it sometime in the first 100 films. And uh, next week is that Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. So next week, uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Isn't it easier just to say Faster Pussycat? Or do we, like, the Kill Kill niggas needs to be at the end of the... The, the title. I mean, that's the title. Faster Pussycat. Kill! Kill! Yeah. Actually, it's Faster Pussycat! Kill! Kill! I don't ever know where you would need to put those verbs in that order. Like, you know, uh, verb, noun, verb, verb. You know, Faster Pussycat. Well, it's, it's, it's proper spelling is Faster, comma, Pussycat! Exclamation point. Kill! Exclamation point. Kill! Exclamation point. Yeah, okay, so is he addressing Pussycat? I assume, right? Uh, or the, well, every time we every time we say the title of the movie, we sh- we need to follow those punctuation. Uh, yeah, f- like well, it's it seems like the comma. You know, when you're writing an email, you go uh, "thank you, comma Matt," means that that thank you is coming from Matt. Um, when uh, you're thanking somebody in email, like "thank you, Matt," you don't put the comma in, but the comma's here, and it's kind of you know like uh, faster pussycat. You know, okay, that Pussycat's writing it. Okay, it's faster, says Pussycat. Oh, and by the way, Kill Kill, you know, so I don't know. You know what we should do? We should do a similar, um, let's do a similar homework experiment next week. <laughs> let's write See. down what we think that, what we think, the, what we think it, it means. What's the point of the title? 
and then I'll look it up and see if Russ Meyer I'm, ever. Something is. tells me that we'll be beat over the head with the title. I'm pretty sure it's not going to uh, be uh, a mystery at all by the time we're done uh, watching uh, it. It's a merciful uh, eighty some minutes, though. Yeah, so. yeah. So right. even if we hate it, it won't be too bad. All right. Until next week. Where's the commode in this dungeon? I've got to take a squirt. <laughs> <laughs>